Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hello, and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter, angler, and forager. Stick with this, and who knows, maybe we will learn something together. All right, so I'm sitting here, and I'm talking to Laurel Sherman. And Laurel, would you like to go and introduce yourself to everybody listening? Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, So I am a forest ecologist, a mushroom enthusiast, a bird nerd. Um, (laughs) I grew up in Pennsylvania and I've been a bird nerd since I was a little girl. And so that means that I was spending a lot of time in the woods. And, you know, when you're out in the woods for hours and hours and days and days, you start to notice everything else around you. So I started getting into plants and trees and wildflowers and insects. And uh, eventually it led me to mushrooms. And I now do um, mushroom and foraging forays. Uh, I teach classes and workshops on plant identification, bird identification, um and just really trying to inspire folks to build rebuild a connection uh relearn what it is to be a human in nature um you know get re-inspired by our outdoor surroundings um currently working as a forest ecologist in Oregon and I work with um the looking at the forest response to thinning and fuels reductions treatments out here, which is largely driven by all the, the big wildfires we've been having recently. Fuel reduction. So reduction of stuff on the ground that would continue to burn or whatever for for spread of wildfires. Yeah. So, so essentially fuel reduction could mean mastication, slash pile burning, prescribed burning. It's um it's a it's kind of a band-aid to the fire suppression issue out here. We've been suppressing fire for decades, and so that's led to a buildup of um woody debris in the landscape, an unnaturally large amount of woody debris because our forests are denser than they have been prior to Euro-American colonization. And so fuels reductions is just a way to try to reduce the um, the fuels on the landscape back to a more, I don't know, sustainable level. It's, it's, it's kind of, it's a controversial topic out <laughs> here. So I'm watching how I say these words. Um, but the, the main goal is to 
uh, slow the spread of fire and to reduce the intensity of wildfire such that it, it doesn't become these catastrophic major events that burn towns down out here like we've been hearing in the news. Yeah. Isn't, I mean, fire is super beneficial to the landscape as well, though. So, like, is that, I mean, an argument that a lot of people are putting forth on that? So, yeah, it's, um, so fire is definitely a part of our landscape. And I don't think anybody is arguing that we shouldn't have fire. Well, actually, there are people that are arguing <laughs> that, like you're saying, um, which is kind of part of the problem. It, really there's a lot of education that needs to happen in 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 these western states um people don't like to deal with toxic smoke for days on end right so in oak ridge oregon the cedar creek fire has led to toxic air quality for almost a month and if you're living in that yeah you're like i don't want fire around me ever but <laughs> the reality of the situation is that our forests are even our wildlife are they've evolved to have uh, wildfire and they require it and um, we kind of have to learn how to live with it and deal with it in a way that um, is less catastrophic to human lives so we can't we shouldn't you know we don't want to get rid of it um, but we need to learn how to live with it better than we have been in the past hundred years <laughs> I say hell with the humans but I'm just kidding <laughs> Um, yeah uh yeah so one of the things you mentioned was you were a bird nerd so i mean like birder or like pet hoarder all of the above like how did the passion start and what did it grow into before um you know you decided to maybe start learning more about them and then realize there's these other things or was it i mean at growing up did you want to actually be an ornithologist or what did what was the what was the path there oh man yeah so i was very allergic to dogs and cats when i was young but i love animals so much and so <laughs> my family had pet birds so we had several different species of conures and you know of course like the little parakeets and whatnot and i had a subscription to bird talk magazine oh, i may have too <laughs> really yes you did i did and i had a pet love bird and it was teal and i named it tealy and oh. that bird lived oh gosh uh, 25 years, something like that. And then I think the only reason it actually died is my niece was playing with it and she was young and she might've been a little too rough and hurt it, but unfortunately, oh, no. yeah. Yeah, but I... Tealy, Tealy lived a long, long time, long after I moved out of the house. So <laughs> yeah. I actually had, my dad is still watching my pet cockatiel from when I lived at home because <laughs> nobody realized that birds live Long so time. long <laughs> long time yeah yeah that's so funny that you know what bird talk magazine is though that means that you're a bird also <laughs> <laughs> now it's changed it's a little bit different um i don't have any pet birds in the house uh my grandma always had like parakeets and things like that when i was a kid so it was always cool to like go over there and play with all of her birds those you couldn't really let out of the cage you know but um tealy i'd be doing my homework and uh he, I think, actually would uh, chase my pencil around and bite the eraser while I'm trying to write all the time. It was pretty cool. Um, he'd never poop on my shoulder. He'd always fly off, sometimes poop oh, on my homework. But That's lucky. Um, yeah. Well, we had him trained. Like, you, you'd actually be like, no. And then he learned from just doing that, like tapping him and saying no, that he would he would fly off and poop yeah. on the table or whatever. <laughs> but, yeah, he wouldn't poop on you. Oh, yeah. that's great. Yeah, I yeah. mean, I definitely had a couple of well-trained birds, but some not well-trained birds mixed in there too. <laughs> yeah, my mom's but, friend oh, had a terribly mean bird. I can't even remember its name, but I hated that thing. It was a golden lorry. Big, big old parrot of some sort. And that thing was just mean. <laughs> you walk by and it'd yell at you. I think it was a golden lorry. And then she had like a red macaw, which was... Oh, wow. Okay, bird. But yeah, she had some big birds too. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I know birds bird talk. Cool. 
It's changed yeah, so though. Word Talk magazine. That's that's funny that we can connect on that, that <laughs> random information. So now it's not Bird Talk magazine, but uh, I do have a backyard flock, a um, couple geese, which are actually going to get processed here because my wife does not want them around on the porch anymore, making messes. Um, so yeah, we're going to eat those. That was kind of the plan anyway, but I got attached to them and my wife didn't, um, (laughs) turkeys sometimes, and then, um, a lot of layers. And then we raise meat birds every year as well. Mostly Cornish crosses, but I think I'm going to switch to some type of heritage breed that's smarter and, uh, able to just free range because that's what I want ultimately. Yeah. Do you know how you're going to, what you're going to do with the geese? Do you have any, you know, special. One I'm going to, oh, like for the preparation, like cooking them. Like I know that I'm going to take one and process it and probably break it down. And the other one I may leave whole. But as far as what I'm going to cook, like I might do like a traditional Christmas goose. um, With with the one that I leave whole and just kind of just hopefully um, put it in the oven and baste it an awful lot and just get super crispy, you know, golden skin on it. That's, that's the, like the goal there. Um, the turkey, unfortunately, one of mine just got hit (laughs) in the road. The neighbor kid told me all about it. Um, he's like, yeah, I watched this kid. He was on his cell phone the whole time. We were yelling and screaming, waving our arms. And then he finally looks up and bam, smacks it. And that bird was probably 30. 30 pound turkey i mean it was big it was a big one but he goes it messed up his car and then he got scared and he just kept going so good for him that's what he deserves the guy wasn't even can you not salvage anything from that no it was it was was a mess a mess he goes i took and threw it in the ditch and the coyotes to take care of what was there when i came home and it was just it was feathers and mess the only thing that was still there was like feet in the road. It was bad. It was a bad. I mean, the kid smoked it. He was probably doing like sixty or seventy. Um, I live on a like a very rural road, and it happens to be one of the tar and chip roads that's almost as smooth as blacktop. So the cars that go down here tend to go pretty fast because it bridges between a county highway and and something else. So, but other than that, it's pretty rural. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, the kid was not paying attention at all. You didn't but take yeah. the, the old lucky turkey feet <laughs> home with you? No. No, I didn't. Um, <laughs> oh, that's bummer. Yeah. And the only other time I've ever had birds actually get hit was my guinea guinea hens. And what was crazy is the one, there was one out of the 10. The guy, and I'm pretty sure the guy actually swerved because a guy I know told me, he's like, I think the guy swerved just to hit him. And I was like, oh, that's terrible. But 10 guinea fowl all wiped out completely smashed gone nothing salvageable and one that wouldn't come back home and i couldn't catch it that stayed with all of the other ones and i'm sure a coyote had to have gotten it at night but yeah Yeah. that's the only birds i've ever lost like that to the road so that's pretty good in eight years so but uh, eight years that is pretty good actually yeah, yeah. yeah now predators on the other hand i've actually had eagles come and take birds so that's hands or what's so like what is the largest bird you've seen a predatory bird take um a turkey okay that's big that's i've been curious about that so bald eagle turkey juvenile turkey so you know maybe 10 12 pounds but still large bird came down ripped the entire breast out of it and flew off oh wow yeah that's massive bird and i know where the nest is i've seen the nest and it's like crazy how big the nest where that one came from and then now since then through little eaglets have made a nest like i don't know less than a quarter mile away from the house but the first time i heard the eagle i was mowing the grass and it sounded like a little girl, like screaming. It startled me. I, and this is from a lawnmower. I hear this and I'm like, oh, somebody's in trouble. And at the time, I didn't even have kids. I thought it was like somebody in my creek drowning. So I stopped the mower. I shut it off. And then I hear it. And I'm like, no. And out comes this eagle out of the creek bed. And it was echoing through it. the creek bed, the screech. And I was like, whoa. 
that's crazy. And I was like, that's so cool. That's the closest eagle encounter I've ever had. Yeah. And then I love in car yeah. commercials how they have to dub in like a red tailed hawk call because <laughs> the bald eagle call is so like you're describing it like a little girl screaming, yes. which is not very powerful, you know, for yeah. a car commercial or something. But yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> it was pretty cool though. But yeah, so that was my eagle experience. And then shortly after, it started killing birds and turkeys. And I was like, oh, come on, man, leave me alone. But. Since then, I haven't had too many problems with it. The chickens have gotten smarter, and they start hiding a little better. Yeah. They see that shadow. It's funny, though. If they see a shadow of, like, hawks, how quickly they duck down and go underneath something. Yeah. So when you say you want to get a heritage breed because they're smarter, is that related to their response to predators and survival? Yes. Yes. Because a, a Cornish cross does not care about anything but eating. They are crazy. Like, if you picture the cartoons when we were kids and Baby Huey, like, that is a Cornish cross variety. You have to take feet away from them or they will eat themselves to death. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, remember the BK <laughs> Broiler commercial? Yeah. Okay. That BK Broiler bird is the bird that's a Cornish cross. And they get that big to where it can barely walk. They waddle. It's almost right. it's almost gross, really. Yeah, it's sad. It's yeah, a sad. Situation, um, right? I don't ever let them get to that point. Normally, like they say, eight nine weeks. I take them to about seven. Then you have a young, more tender bird. Then because I don't know, I just find that the muscle grows too fast, and it, it, there's a certain point to where it just it's kind of gross. Um, so we like them at about seven weeks, which is a little bit better than the eight nine. But. Um, then you actually start having heart failure and things like that at like nine weeks anyway. So it's crazy. Yeah. And it's, it's so good to eat something like that. It, right. I mean, it's the same as commercially raised chicken or whatever. It, it just doesn't feel right or good. Right. I mean, I pasture them, you know, and it's not like, or at least I don't believe, I believe they're just bred to that. Like they're not genetically modified, you know, but, yeah. um, and we pasture them and try and give them just, you know, make it a humane life and all these different things to it. But at the same time, it's like, they're dumb. They're super dumb birds. And all they do is just have a voracious appetite. And so I told my wife, I'm like, I really want to just raise ones where we're able to just free range them. And they're smart enough to not just stand there and eat when something's going to come up and eat it. So looking yeah. into that, there's a few out there, I think. So we're going to see next year and it's a longer process you know you're talking like 14 weeks at that point versus you know seven or or nine but right but to some extent that just we've moved so far away from what is natural right. in terms of the bird life cycle that you know you're like oh 14 weeks that's so long but that's really we've shifted our baseline yeah. thing unnatural and really probably like 14 weeks is what it should be and yes. we just need to be more patient <laughs> yes yeah and not feed them certain things like some companies do like right yeah tyson yeah. feeding them arsenic and then putting it on oh. rice crops and then they wonder why there's rice with arsenic in it but you know that's a different story yeah, yeah we could go on and on yeah, about agriculture but yeah <laughs> but anyway let's talk about um so i we got so sidetracked here <laughs> I know. Yeah, I mean, we we just got right into it. I so <laughs> the, the bird, the bird thing. I had these pet birds, and and I um I kind of like I grew up in a city, and I would run away a lot. Um, and I'd run away to these local city parks and just sit and stare at the tree canopies and look at the birds. And I started noticing the bird song. And my mom actually always says that I was born with this bird nerdism <laughs> and uh yeah my grandpa got me my first pair of binoculars when I was 10 years old and I've just forever been extremely intrigued and fascinated by birds and made it into my career almost um you know I've had job multiple jobs that are just about bird research so um yeah, it's just, it, it's almost like it's been a part of me and I don't, I, there's not one moment that happened that I became a bird lover, but I, it's just been a part of me. So my wife's uncle is an ornithologist. Oh, so cool. it's, yeah, it, it was his passion and his dad loved uh, bird watching and, and uh, it was something that they shared and it ended up becoming a career for him. So it's pretty cool. 
Yeah. Yeah. Parents have a way of just figuring out, figuring out how to keep that in their lives, you know, whether it be people who do like big years or uh, people who do it for research or, or whatever, it's people get really obsessed with birds. It's kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. And her, what's crazy is her, her grandfather would always carve wood carvings and their house had so many birds in it. And so when he passed, you know, there were certain ones. And of course, you know, he knew every single species of what was carved, but he'd, he'd be like, oh no, this one's super special, you know? I'm like, okay, yeah. I, that's awesome. That's you know, cool. like what, it's cool. The species or because of like the wood carving aspect of it? I think both, you know, like yeah. that it was probably something that he shared, but you know, he'd go around and he'd tell me like every single species of what they were in the carvings and stuff. I think we might have like one or two, but um, oh, cool. yeah. So anyway, um, back to you. So loved birds, had a few jobs. Um, and then, but like you said, spending time in nature, you started realizing all of these other things. When did like the foraging aspect come into play? Was that something that was always there even as a child or was it, Hey, I went to college, took some botany courses and then it really sparked a fire. Yeah, I, it's, so I grew up in Southwestern Pennsylvania, close to West Virginia, where morel hunting, chanterelle hunting is kind of just a way of life. And it's, it's, it's all, it was in the background of my life when I was younger, people weren't like, we're mushroom hunters. It was just, you know, families go out and pick morels every spring and that's, and chanterelles in the fall and that's, nobody talks about it. Um, and it wasn't until so I when I went to college at the University of Vermont, there was a naturalist program there. And I attended some class, some free community walks with some of these PhD naturalist students um, that had to do this for their degree and started learning about the medicinal properties that, you know, ethnobotany side of of what's out there and started looking at it in a little bit of a different way. Um, but then moving to Oregon really kind of launched my view of, um, mushroom hunting specifically into something that is, I mean, cause it's the Pacific Northwest, right? right. It's, it's, it's the greatest, like, I mean, <laughs> the mecca of mushroom hunting. Yeah. And I know the best is great too for mushroom hunting. Um, it's still not the same. It's, it's such a different atmosphere out here. And I just you know, deep dived into it, but it's always been there in my life, never a major part, just kind of in the background. And, and then I met some people who were really enthusiastic about it and there that was infectious. And I just, all of a sudden, you know, I've been here for eight years and eight years later, here we are talking on, on this podcast. So yeah, it's funny how that happens. That's awesome. That's cool though. Um, so then like, was the, was, a you learned the medicinal side and then was there any point where you decided to like start utilizing, um, all these different plants and the medicinal properties of them and things like that? Or was it just something that you learned? Um, so I definitely dabble a bit in the medicinal side of plants and mushrooms, but I wouldn't call myself an herbalist or somebody that I don't feel comfortable teaching. There's so many yeah. other people out there yeah. that have such deeper connection and knowledge of that, that I do make tinctures with, with medicinal mushrooms. And, and, you know, I take stinging nettle seed tincture every day. Um, and my friends, um, make tinctures and we, sh you know, we trade and whatnot, but I personally, just dabble in that in my own realm and don't really teach that at all. I don't feel like that's my role. Um, I stick to more of like the, what can you eat, but also the ecology of it and how does it fit in with, with the, with the ecosystem. And, and I like, um, existing in the realm where it's broader. Um, how, how are these, you know, what is the impact of us doing this? What is the connection of these mushrooms to these trees? Just like taking many steps back. Um, but, but I, yeah, I do, uh, personally, personally, right. Yeah. I don't yeah. teach herbalism on, on here. I don't really teach anything. I don't feel like if somebody learned something from me and anybody ever, if anybody's listening right now, reach out to me and tell me if I've ever actually taught you something versus something that you've learned from one of the guests, because I'd love to know that. But, um, I don't, I don't feel that I teach. Um, but 
but I think that's that's like the best teachers are the ones that don't they <laughs> kind of drip the knowledge into your brain without forcing it there you know what I mean there's like little tidbits of knowledge that I've already picked up from you and just chatting <laughs> you're too kind <laughs> so yeah um, everybody's in their own way so please explain this though and I know you're not a clinical herbalist but um stinging nettle seed why the seed and what like what properties are there that are trying to be utilized and like kind of what for i'm very curious because i've always heard like stinging nettle seed is super high in oxalates right obviously the oxalates probably aren't going to get like absorbed into the alcohol or fats that i've recently learned but what's the purpose there Um, so I have a really close friend. So I was going through some, I had a loss in my life a few months ago and I was going through grief and trauma and allergies. And somehow all of those things led to stinging nettle tincture. And she kind of recommended certain extractions and tinctures for me. I, I feel like, you know, Brianna or somebody would be a much better person to ask on the details. I was actually, um, kind of let somebody held my hand and led me to taking stinging nettle seed on a daily basis based on what I was dealing with at the time. Um, so grief and somehow oddly allergies, but I just, again, I don't feel like I can yeah. no, I get comfortable it. <laughs> talking in depth about this when really my friend Blair is the one that um, has the deep knowledge and and uh, kind of led me to that direction. That's interesting, though. I, I just i I wonder what the properties. I'm going to have to look into it now. I am going to research. Uh, yeah, it. I am too. Because you asked me that, and I'm like, and I take it every well, day, hey, and that's fine. I take better. nettle tea, and I don't know what properties in that. I know it's uh, anti-inflammatory, um, and then so I actually throw some mallow in there because the nettle itself will dry you out. These are things I've learned along oh, the way. Yeah. So then yeah. you throw mallow in there and now it's got something that, you know, yeah. binds moisture. And right. then, so I've been taking that quite a bit, but what I've noticed, I've got, uh, I took a fall not that long ago and, um, I didn't realize it at the time I did more than just hurt my wrist and I thought it was just my wrist. Well, I ended up messing up my knee. And so there's been like extra pain involved with that and I'm probably going to have to get it operated on. But in the meantime, I'm like, since I've been taking the tea, there's less pain. It's weird. And it's actually, yeah. So I I started thinking about how plant medicine actually works. I know. It's crazy. (laughs) And I'm like, it's the tea that I've been drinking every night. Finally, it you know, dawned on me. And I'm like, well, one, I'm like probably adding extra moisture to my body and like the joints and things are utilizing the mallow. And then the stinging nettle is, you know, anti-inflammatory. And I'm like, oh, this is great. You know, and I originally was just taking it because I wanted to help my allergies. But And then I sometimes think that in addition to the literal benefits of plant medicine, there's it forces you to be present and pay attention to what you're feeling and how you're feeling and how that changes over time. And that actually, not that it, not saying that's placebo, because I don't think it is being present and listening to your body and being more aware of what you need is like a, a byproduct of getting into plant medicine because you, you have to pay more attention to what, how you react to different tinctures and whatnot. So it's almost like a learning your body helps heal your body as well learning and listening yeah and then and then knowing but then i feel like there's a deeper connection because the nettle is stuff that i picked you know i I didn't pick the mallow root but you know the nettle the the goldenrod all these different things right it's it's stuff that i have the connection with in fact i talked about for the first time ever on the podcast is like the connection that you develop becomes a relationship and you truly understand these plants for the first time it's not just a weed it's not just oh hey that's dandelion it's hey dandelion has been in me i know how it feels what it affects it becomes a actual relationship with that and that's something that most people probably never experience but once you do it's like whoa you just you just open hey plant you just open me up to this whole new world 
you know yeah, it's, it's crazy special. and i'm sure people and, listening I mean, you know, to this are going to think i'm nuts but it's true <laughs> and the more time you spend in nature and you spend with these things the more of a relationship you develop and i hope that as we continue to talk to more people fewer people will think that you're nuts because it's not right. nuts no no <laughs> it it's a lot of so cool yeah yeah it's yeah it's definitely awesome it's uh it's been a journey so relationships because you talked about a little bit the the fungi and like relationship with so can you kind of go into that a little bit more in detail and then like maybe bridge it into wildlife and the relationship it has with the environment yeah um so yeah i mean <laughs> everything is connected in sure. in our in in any ecosystem i know that's so cliche sounding but so i work in forest ecosystems they're largely conifer ecosystem conifer and hardwoods really but um it's you know if you're a mushroom hunter or a forager of anything you it's easy to because we've learned how to separate everything into these individual species and categorize everything it's easy to go out and be like i'm foraging for this one species today and that's all i need to know about but in reality when you think about the the interaction of that one species with the ecosystem, including wildlife, it, it becomes like, oh, well, I should probably learn about the entire plant association here. I should learn about all the trees because that's going to allow me to become a better forager. It's also going to be allow me to become a better steward of this species that I'm foraging. Um, but yeah, so I think like you know, I was mentioning earlier, my, when I teach uh, foraging classes, my goal is really to um, not only educate folks on what they can and cannot utilize medicinally and for food, but also how does, what is the role of that species in this ecosystem and how can we appreciate it without having to eat it? Um, because you know, everybody's like, can I eat that species? Can I eat it? And it's like, well, no, but it's doing amazing things for our forest and we should thank it and be really excited mm -hmm. about this one too, even though we can't eat it. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. When you go out there and the fish are where you think they are, any one of these casts could be the bite. It's the most exciting fishing that I know right here at Hawks Cave. Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment. So yeah, I think <laughs> I'm like on a mission to teach people fungi that you you can't eat but are super cool. Um, and one of the ways that I've found um, that works for me to do that is to link it to wildlife because I study wildlife. Um, so I do mostly study birds, but I also do other wildlife taxa. And I think it's really cool to connect the fungi with the wildlife species with the trees and just stand in a forest a forest and look around and it's you know it's just this giant cyclical situation where everything relies on each other in some way um it gets very complex um to the point where i don't think we understand most of what's going on but um but yeah i don't know i can give some it's, specific it's, well example. yeah sure but so it's balance right like everything exists together and it's balance and what's crazy is we don't realize most of the time we're the ones who screw up the balance some things are cyclical to where they'll they'll have waves right and they go through phases to where sometimes you know there there's highs and lows of certain things but other than that there's balance it's perfect balance and i don't care well, highs and lows are part of the balance right right yes it's a dynamic balance <laughs> for sure but so like you know, and people don't understand that and like, oh, well, something's happening to this. And it's like a knee jerk reaction when they don't realize that, no, this happens. And, and there's reason, you know, but 
you know, I, I, I get like what you're saying. Fire. Yeah. Yeah. With fire out here, the, the inclination is to think, oh, trad, this is tragic. I mean, it, and sometimes they are tragic in some ways, um, you know, if human lives or structures are lost, but yeah. setting an entire uh, patch of a forest burning down, you know, in, in an area where that is expected to happen is actually required for some species to regenerate. So like, you know, we've got lodgepole pine out here. They require these high severity fires. So th that, that, dy that dynamic nature of it and those stark changes, we've learned to be averse to them because we don't understand them. But I think we're relearning that like we, in certain areas, we need that to happen to set the forest back to the beginning. Um, and it looks really sad and it is sad, but it, but that's what needs to happen in order for uh, biodiversity to be maintained at some level. And it, yeah, it's just, we just, you know, it's, it's a constant learning process for and then humans. more browse for the animals. And yeah, it's just, yeah. it's awesome though. But so yeah, what was some specifics you were thinking of? Is there anything in particular, any type of fungi that, uh, really yeah. plays a relationship well, with something? There's two fun ones that, that I like to bring up. Um, so in Oregon, we have flying squirrels and we have, um, so they, they nest in tree, in tree canopies. So they are utilizing conifer trees, um, to reproduce and they love eating fungi. They love eating false truffles like rhizopogon, which are, they look like white truffles, but they're not, they fruit underground. And these flying squirrels have a really good sense of smell for these false truffles. They'll dig them up once the, so the false truffle will emit these smell compounds once the spores are mature, uh, which is an evolutionary adaptation with the squirrel, which is wild. Uh, <laughs> like the fungi has learned that it, it should not emit smell compounds before the spores are mature because then, you know, it's it not being- It won't survive, it won't fruit, right? right. Yeah. So it waits and then it starts emitting smell compounds and the squirrels key into that and they are really good at finding them and their digestive system actually allows the spores to pass through and still be viable. And that doesn't happen <laughs> with crazy. all wildlife. It is. <laughs> it's wild crazy. stuff. Like when you think about how this all happened, how we got here, it's wild. But um, so the squirrels will, I just kind of picture like little flying, flying squirrels running through the, flying through the tree canopies, tree to tree, just, just pooping out, let rhizopogon <laughs> spores everywhere. And so they're, they're spreading the rhizopogon spores to much farther distances than would ever happen otherwise. Um, and, you know, so that's a mutualistic relationship between the squirrel and the fun, the fungus, but then that the rhizopogon is a mycorrhizal fungi or uh, fungal species with conifers. So the squirrel is um, benefiting from the tree by nesting in the tree, but the trees are benefiting from the squirrels by having them around because they're spreading the spores of the, the fungal species that helps the tree obtain more water and nutrients. So it's this beautiful triangle of mutualism. And I mean, there's a lot of nuance and complexity within that, but it's there, that is a pattern that repeats itself over and over in nature. And of course there are other patterns like parasitism and whatnot, different strategies, but it's just so fascinating to look at that and see how nature is. <laughs> the fact that they're pooping out and spreading out. a mushroom that helps preserve their home. Like, yeah, pretty cool. <laughs> that's... It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So that's a fun one. Um, my, my second, uh, another favorite one to share is that woodpecker species actually, we're finding that they are acting as wood decay fungi dispersers. So woodpeckers are cavity excavators. They nest in cavities in trees, usually dead trees. And they have to, they, they can't get into the wood if it's fully sound. There needs to be some sort of wood decay fungi in there that is already breaking down the lignin, starting to decay the wood so that, because uh, like the woodpecker bill is pretty strong, but it's not that strong. 
So they need some sort of fungus to come in, inoculate the tree, start breaking down that wood structure before they can actually excavate their nests. And it just so happens that um, in several studies on different species of woodpeckers, they're actually carrying fungal spores of those wood decay fungi on their feet, on their bellies, when they move from tree to tree. So they're actually inoculating other trees with these wood decay fungi that will help future woodpeckers or them in future years to decay that tree. Hmm. So there's a mutualism with the wood decay fungi and the bird. Um, and there's, there's a lot of different theories on how that happens. There's some, uh, there's one study that showed that it could be UV related where certain fungal mycelium in a tree, the bird can actually see mm -hmm. that. And that's how it decides to start excavating a cavity in that specific tree. And then it'll get its, you know, spores all over it. And it'll go to another tree to feed and inoculate that tree. That's pretty cool. So they're actually like ecosystem engineers in that way, where they're facilitating tree death or tree decay. Um, and, you know, snag production. Snags are just standing dead trees, essentially. But that's an important role that they're playing because dead wood is important for loads of other species so so they're like a keystone species slash ecosystem engineer so and i mean this is a this is a new a new a new science new finding um it could be all woodpecker species it could i'm assuming it is i actually want to start studying this so <laughs> we'll see i keep planting the seed with my supervisor like hey we should check out our woodpeckers here and I want to capture them and swab their bellies and do a, a DNA analysis of the fungal uh, species on them. Um, so maybe next year, we'll see. <laughs> That's pretty cool. No, I just learned about uh, the ash borer beetle and the fact that it's not actually the ash borer beetle that's killing the tree. It's some type of uh, fungus or, or some type of bacteria that's on the beetle that's killing the tree, mm -hmm. which... I was like, what? Wait a minute. Here this whole time. I'm like, oh, these beetles are killing the tree and it's not the beetle. It's what's right. on the beetle. But yeah. And that's just... a mutualism too between those two. That's actually like, like a somewhat, I don't want to say common, but that's something that repeats itself in nature with um, bacteria or, or fungal pathogens. They can't just get into the heartwood of a tree or the cambium of a tree so they have this you know this mutualism with different insects wood boring beetles whatever and it yeah it, it's just it's just it's mind-blowing yeah <laughs> yeah so now i've actually been working on clearing out all the dead ash that looks dangerous standing right now yeah, so around my house have live ash out there not many no there there are some but it's they're pretty rare right now yeah, it's, and within the past, I don't know, I'm trying to think. So I've been here like eight, nine years, and there was quite a few live ones then that are now all dead standing. But I know of some places where there still is some ash trees that, uh, like I go hunting on the properties and stuff that are public ground, that there's still ash trees, just not very many. Yeah, and I wonder if those... so. It, I would imagine or hope that there's some effort to find resistant ash trees somewhere. Um, and I wonder if, if folks who have ash trees are keyed into that or not, probably not, but we just, um, we just had our first emerald ash borer sighting in Oregon, maybe two months ago. Um, and we have the Oregon ash out here. So it's, I don't know that it's as widespread and prevalent as east of the Rockies, um, but it's a major part of our riparian zones. And so everybody out here is kind of freaking out. Yeah. This is a new, a new issue for us out here. They've still got the beetle traps everywhere on the trees, you know, to try and see and catch them and figure things out. But you don't see as many of them anymore. So maybe they've concluded their studies. I don't know. We'll have to find yeah. out. Now it's going to be some more research, some more digging. But uh, so one of the things I've noticed that I've seen is you do some foraging on a golf course. Oh yeah. So <laughs> tell me about that. Do you just 
sneak onto the golf course all stealth like ninja mode or what? What's the <laughs> at first? Yes, I did. And then I so I lived right by the golf course and um walked my dog at the golf course and started noticing that there were uh remnant, you know, plums and pears and apple trees from properties that were there prior to them turning into a golf course. And yeah, I would sneak around at first um, and bring a backpack and kind of stuff all the plums into my bag. But at, at some point, the groundskeeper folks came up to me and I remember being like, oh boy, like I, I knew I wasn't going to get in serious trouble or anything, but the groundskeeper, I remember he was actually happy to have me there because they had to clean up all the fallen fruit. And so he was like, please take everything. Nice. tell everybody come out and take it all because otherwise we have to clean it up um and so at that point i actually talked to him about their use of you know pesticides fungicides and all that because i was wondering but mm -hmm. wasn't yeah it was you know a little bit of a back uh, an, of the mind gray area thing and, yeah <laughs> and they they actually they knew that people foraged there and so they don't they you know th these trees are kind of on the they're not right in the golf course area they're on the the, the border and the forested area so they didn't spray there and so i then just had this wonderful conversation with this person which is so um it's just kind of like a, a metaphor about how we should handle these types of situations instead of like sneaking around and hiding why not just have a conversation with somebody right. and then in this case it was a win-win i definitely knock on people's doors now too if they have like a magnolia tree in their front yard and i want to harvest the magnolia buds i'll just straight up be that weirdo who knocks on your door and is like can i bring a ladder and harvest your magnolia buds please and people just look at me like what what do you want to do? But um, I think, yeah, foraging in urban spaces is something that's becoming more accepted slowly. I think um, Alexis Nicole, Black Forager, is helping to um, bring that acceptance to utilizing urban spaces. And Tim, too, um, MN Forager, they're both doing a great job of that. I think we're, you know, it's such an underutilized space. Golf courses specifically usually have a lot of chemicals mm -hmm. yeah. um, on them. So I think it's good to keep that in mind and talk to the people about what they're spraying and when. But yeah, it's it, there's so much space in, in suburbs and, and urban landscapes that have so much food that are just really underutilized. So, um, so now you have permission you talk to the person he's like tell all your friends did you ever like post it on like uh fallingfruit.org or anything like that you know i didn't actually post it on fallingfruit.org because i didn't know about it at the time and then i kind of forgot about that website <laughs> until, um, i'll still look at it uh, but it doesn't get updated very often yeah i think people just don't think i i mean personally i forget about it but i've posted it to instagram i've said hey if anybody's willing to drive to this town um i can tell you where to get plums and figs because i can't harvest them all and they're gonna go to waste otherwise so i do actually have several friends that go harvest from the golf course now so one of the things you mentioned was the figs and so what do you do with all the figs uh well, aside from eating them as is, I dehydrate a lot of them and use them for backpacking and whatnot. Um, you know, like the high sugar content is good for that. But I actually, this pat, well, last year I started experimenting with figs more and I, um, I did, I harvested a bunch of unripe figs and put them in a, a, a fig leaf. So I made fig leaf syrup, which is essentially boiling fig leaves. Um, and then adding sugar and it oddly smells like coconuts. It's it, you mm. walk into the house and it's like, Oh, I'm in a tropical place or something. It's really beautiful. Um, and then I preserved these unripe figs in this fig leaf syrup. And I might've gotten this idea from Alan Burgo, but I can't remember. Um, and they're phenomenal or no, it was Pascal, uh, who I got it from. But so now I'm, this year I harvested loads of unripe figs and it's just a whole new way to utilize that. So these are 
just kind of a snacking fig. You can make a dessert out of them, but, um, I'm, I dehydrate tons. I've got like gallon glass jars and use them for hiking and whatnot. So I planted a fig tree this year and it was just, I mean, pretty much bare root and it took off and had leaves on it. And I was like, huh, okay. And then all of a sudden it had all these fruits on it and I didn't do anything with them because they were unripe. And then I was like, oh, the frost is going to kill them. They're not going to develop. Now that I know this next year, maybe, even though the tree will be bigger then and probably have ripe fruit. But, and then I saw you and I asked you, I was like, fig leaf syrup. What is that? I think I, I questioned that and DM'd you on Instagram, but like, so you just you simply take the leaves, put them in water with X amount of sugar, boil it for X amount of time, and then it imparts flavor and just... And that's it. And as it's boiling, those volatile compounds start coming out of the leaves and it is like uh, maple syrup, coconut. It's very tropical. It's kind of amazing. And then that fig leaf syrup you can use, um, I mean, any for baking as you would maple syrup on pancakes, whatever. It's, it's super good. Um, I don't eat a lot of honey and maple syrup. So I made a big batch of it and then ended up having to gift it to people because it was just sitting in my fridge. Actually, I I have three, three pints left of, uh, maple syrup that I made that I'm super excited. Well, now you gotta make big leaf syrup next year. I guess so. Yeah. If my tree doesn't die, uh, Clay Bauer says that it may die and it'll have to be cut back because even though it's a Chicago hardy fig, this is what I've heard. And he says, even though it says it's Chicago hardy fig, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to produce fruit and grow and be bountiful. He's like, you might have to wrap oh. it. So, so it's going to be a tease. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be a tease is what he's telling me. And now I'm disappointed, but he says I could maybe burlap wrap it and prevent it from, you know, getting too cold and, and helping it out. We'll see. I don't know. I'm going to well, let it go the first couple of years and just see. What's that? I'm rooting for your fig tree. Me too. I hope that it thrives. I... And even if you don't get fruit, you'll have fig leaves to make fig leaf syrup. With. Absolutely. Because it sounds cool. I'm interested. So does the coconut and all those different flavors, do they stay within the syrup or no? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. That's they pretty sure cool. sure do. And then it's, you just, do you bottle it or, or put it like can it in little jars or what do you do? Yeah, I pressure canned it in little jars um, because I get a little weird about if you're doing something in a vinegar brine, it's it feels safer. But, you know, to just have in your fridge for a while. But with the it's a sugar syrup and that I don't know, it just kind of freaks me out in terms of food safety. So, so I, I the one thing I'll it. say is like my wife cans a lot like the, when we first got together, the only thing she ever really canned was like jam. Um, and then I made, I like probably burned her out on it and tell kids, but then she was like, I'm not going to the store and buying jelly. I'll just make jam. Right. So now like she makes all of our jam that we eat. I don't eat that much, but the kids love it. Peanut butter and jellies all the time. But, um, it's, you know, all jam from either strawberries that we grew or somebody else grew or she buys, but then, you know, mulberries and different things like that too. The kids don't seem to care for the mulberry jam that much, but I like it. Um, but it's just sugar. I mean, that's all it is, right? And it's pretty freaking shelf stable and you're just boiling it. And then like some of them, she doesn't even water bath. Like if she knows it's going to be utilized within like four or five months, it's just hot packing, just making sure everything's clean and yeah, sugar, sugar. It's that's more, crazy. I think it's just like a, I don't, I don't do jams and jellies and, and syrups much. So I think it's more of like a unfamiliarity you yeah. know, when people aren't familiar with something, it be, it can be fearful, just like foraging. Right. Um, so my maybe some feel more confident. <laughs> my fearful thing right now is like fermentation. I am having all kinds of, I feel like problems with it. I don't yeah. even know. Um, I've been there. I used to be that and I got over the hump and now I'm, I, now I just don't even care anymore. <laughs> so maybe so, I'll get there with the sugary thing. Let me ask you this then. And I know maybe you're not an expert or whatever, you know, culinary yeah. expert, but um, so one of my, I don't think any of them actually fully fermented. Like, I don't even know if it started the process and maybe it's too cold. Like I had them in my basement. I moved them upstairs. Um, but I don't see bubbles. One of them I took and like sampled, but then I noticed, so some of the stuff floated past the weight 
and it like got a little bit of white mold, I scooped that stuff out and I was like, mm, the rest is probably fine. Is it? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. I used to get freaked out by stuff floating on top because you hear, you know, the, you got to scoop it out every day. But, and I used to be concerned about that, but um, I don't think it's that big of a deal anymore. I think that the, the, the telling part for me is the way it smells. If it's that good funky smell, even if you had some mold in it or still have some floaties, it, or if it's yeast heavy, um, it's it's been fine for me. Um, I, the few times that things have gone wrong, it's been very obvious based on the smell. And I fish stuff out from the top all the time and just let it keep going. And I'm here talking to you right now. <laughs> yeah. So what's weird though is like, it tasted briny, which is normal, right? But there wasn't the like the fermentation. It wasn't like softened. It didn't have like the I don't know the fermented taste to it. Like the I don't know. It was weird. It yeah, wasn't like sour. Think, what were you do? Was it uh, produce from the store? Was it wild forage stuff? What was it? It was cabbage that I had from my garden, and I just rinsed it off lightly. Um, the outer layers, obviously you're not going to do the inner layers food processed it. So it was chopped up really good and put it, packed it in a jar. Maybe, maybe I packed it too tight. I don't know. And then I just poured my brine over it, which was like, I think two and a half tablespoons or whatever it called for, you know, the recipe to whatever, to, to a quart or pint. I don't know, whatever. I followed yeah. the recipe, but so I think that, uh, I mean, it should have had enough wild yeast on it coming from your garden for sure. I think that um, I started, do you do like, so you're following a recipe as opposed to doing it by weight, uh, like salt content mm -hmm. by weight. I didn't I do it by weight. That. Yeah. So that I would recommend you have a, a kitchen scale. Mm -hmm. Of course. Yeah. I would recommend um, do, you know, just doing like a 2% to two point three percent salt content by weight of what you're using and it sounds like maybe you didn't have a high enough salt content or you had too high of a salt content because if you don't have a high enough salt content then something that you don't want to grow might grow and then it will outcompete the good bacteria or if you have too high of a salt content uh it's inhospitable to the good bacteria so yeah i would i would definitely recommend weighing it all out, doing a little simple math and making sure you have that two to 2.1, 2.2% salt content. Yeah. Cause I think I just followed the ball canning, whatever they told me. And I think they failed me yeah. because it tastes, I mean, it just tastes briny. That's it. I don't think it's ever happened. It makes me sad. Yeah. I think there's just, I mean, like you said, you pack the jar tight. Mm -hmm. So the weight of what you had could be very different than somebody else. And so I think it, it, yeah, it's weigh it, weigh it out and do another experiment with your garden cabbage, and I'm sure it'll work. It's I think ruined. It might it's, ru die. <laughs> it's ruined. Well, I don't think it's ruined. I think it just wasn't full, you know, fermented. Well, yeah, in the way but what I'm saying is now there's nothing. I mean, it's done, <laughs> right? Like, right. what am I going to do you with just it? Have pickled, you've got pickled or salt brined cabbage. Salt brined cabbage, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which could still be good. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I guess. Um, so I got to ask you, what's your favorite mushroom then to actually go after? Because I feel like mine has drastically changed. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I mean, I have a hard, like everybody, I have a hard time picking one. But this year, it was really fun to key into Mountain Natural Morels uh, and Spring Porcini. Um, I, in past years, have had friends who are really good at finding those and so I go out go out with other people to their spots and pick up on the knowledge from them but this year I really took it upon myself to do it on my own and and found my own spots and so that was super rewarding um but of course you know this fall now we're chanterelles are easy out here um but we have our our uh our fall porcini just starting to pop up. So same deal. I'm, I've been going out with a group of people and I still do go out with them, but I'm really taking it upon myself now to find new spots uh, and really step up my own game and challenge myself. So yeah, currently those King Bowl eats, but this spring was really fun. I spent a lot of time, just a lot of 
miles walked, a lot of failed attempts, and I learned a lot, and I feel really good about it. <laughs> See, so like, you guys have the burn morels, so that I, I, I'm guessing when you say mountain natural morels, you're talking about the ones that aren't the burn morels, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. So I yeah. mean, that's all we have, but I feel like they're fairly easy to find, and competition is very fierce. So I've migrated away from that, and I'm like, mm, not so much anymore. And when I eat them, I'm like, meh. I don't know. I've just gotten past what, like the, the burn, mor- burn, not burn morels. Burn morels are mountain naturals. We only have natural morels, so we don't right. have we don't have burn morels and you really. Think they're meh. They're, eh, it's okay, right? <laughs> so my new thing, and I've always liked them, but now have like a new grown appreciation for them is head of the woods. So like, that's just mm. my new thing um, that I'm love, and I feel like chanterelles they like. Hard to find, I guess, but once you find them, it's like boom, everywhere, right? They're they're just, I mean, it's not like you're gonna find one or two. You're gonna find, or at least in my experience, you can find like fifty of them, and then you walk, you know, yeah. a couple hundred yards, and you're like, oh whoa, there's a whole bunch more of them. So like, there's not like the mystique, like there is for me. I don't know, but like I also know what and what's cool is like early hunting season, deer season. If I don't get a deer. A lot of the properties I'm hunting, there's some beautiful old oaks, and I know I'm going to come home with some mushrooms. So it's like, just makes it that much more special for me. Yeah. Yeah. You can always find something. Yeah. Chanterelles out here are kind of easy. They're abundant. I mean, at least in Western Oregon, where it's wet, uh, the forest, moist forest where I'm at. Um, if you go over the Cascade Crest, then it becomes much more difficult and rare almost. But you could just go anywhere and dug fir forest here and find chanterelles. So, and I love chanterelles. They're delicious and I harvest them, but it's, there's no, there's not a challenge there. It's kind of like, um, I need chanterelles today. I know that I can go to the spot and get some versus, you know, other species where it takes more effort. That's, that's a little bit more fun nowadays. Yeah. And so my new thing is trying to find shrimps and I haven't been successful. My buddy's got a spot yeah. that I don't go with, with them. And I think I'm going to have to like, listen. I'm going, we're going to, we're going to get these just so I can get the experience of, because I feel like sometimes once you find them with somebody and you're like, oh, and you're digging in the dirt and you realize like your surroundings and what's around you, you get that feel. And then when you're out on your own, you're like, ah, this feels right. This is the spot I'm going to find. Yeah. So that's what I'm going to try and work on them, you know, next, next year, next fall, early fall and try and do so. That feeling is, is that's a, that's definitely a thing. And so when I take people out, I try to teach them like, what is that feeling? You know, you're getting that feeling because you're in a space that has these certain structural and compositional elements. And so like, how can we define that and write it down? But it's not always definable. Sometimes you just know, and it's the same species. And, you know, if you wrote, if you read your notes, it would be the same thing, but like, there's something about that space that you just know is a good space. Well, I get it. I get it. Or like, so like decomposing pine needles and you smell it and it's like on the edge of oaks at the same time, you know, like that transition line. And all of a sudden you're like, Hey, what's this? Oh, it's a wood bluet. Like, you know, like, like from that certain thing, you know, you, you, you pick up on, I don't know, you just pick up on things like that. And you're, and what's weird is your brain fills in that gap because it's been there before. It's familiar and you don't even realize it until eventually Mm -hmm. you do realize it. It's pretty cool. Absolutely. It's pretty cool. And I love that because while it's great to be able to define some things, it's really necessary for us to not have an answer to everything and to just go with our intuition with a lot of this. Yeah. So it's been awesome talking to you. I appreciate uh, you coming on and sharing with me and the guests. But before we go, if somebody wants to, if they live in the PNW and maybe they want to take a class with you or something like that, where can they find you, reach out to you and all that good stuff? Yeah. So I um, am active on Instagram. My Instagram handle is Laurel Morell. Um, I do have a website. It's laurelmorell.com. I, um, there's a, a link to emailing me on there, but I am very active on Instagram. So I would recommend finding me on there. If you have any questions or want to reach out, um, that would be the avenue. Okay. Um, and once again, Laurel, it's been fun. Uh, I appreciate it. And thank you so much for coming on.
Thank you for having me. It's been great. Once again, thank you so much for listening to the Publicly Challenged podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please subscribe on whatever platform it is you're listening to. Also, if you could leave a review, that would help us out. And you could check us out on Instagram or at publiclychallenged.com. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the show. I'm Will Cooper, host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. If you haven't already, download the free Waypoint TV app to listen to our podcast and watch the original films from HuntStand Presents anywhere, anytime, and on any device. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, I'll be over there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.